Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, 9th of March. On the Michael Reed Show this morning, the government is set to give the green light for a reduction in the price of fuel at the pumps. Motorists are set to reap the benefits at midnight tonight. The IFA hit out at the Minister for Agriculture's lack of food emergency proposals. A man is jailed for four years for cleaning up a house where 17-year-old Keen Mulready Woods is believed to have been murdered in 2020. We've got the latest on how sanctions are working in Ukraine and government plans to home refugees. And there's been a significant increase in the numbers of people accessing help from the Vincent de Paul. You're very welcome to the programme this morning. You're with Alan Cantwell right through till 11. Now, if you want to contact us, 086-1800-658, or you can call us on 041-983-2000. As you've been hearing on the news, it's expected that a proposal will go before the Doyle today that will cut fuel costs through a reduction in excise duties. The charges would then take effect from round about midnight tonight, as expected. The Doyle passes the financial resolution. Work was ongoing at the Department of Finance late last night on the proposals to decrease the excise duties on fuel. And I suppose the move it comes as the cost of a barrel of oil has reached record levels. Joining us this morning to discuss this is Minister of State for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne. Minister, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, the, the devil is in the detail here. What we're hearing is somewhere in between 15 and 20 cent a litre. Is that what you're hearing or can you shed any more light on this? Well, look, the government's been working on this since this crisis arose because, quite frankly, this was obvious. I mean, this has been happening for some time because of the tension that Putin, Putin is putting on the world and on Ukraine in particular. Um, that it has had an effect on uh, energy prices, on fuel prices. And we've seen that over the last few months. It was, it was hard to explain to people, I think, at that point, because we didn't have the reality of war, and now we have it, uh, and it's actually going to accelerate. So the government is obviously going to try and do its bit. Um, the excise duties are there and taxes are there on fuel. Now, don't forget, those taxes pay for public services, etc. Um, they don't just, I mean, the impression sometimes given by opposition politicians is the government is raking it in, I think was a phrase used yesterday, but those taxes are used. Uh, to for public services. But clearly the price is now coming to almost unsustainable levels. And the government has to step in uh, to reduce excise duty. But I would I would be careful though as well because I, I don't see this getting any better at the moment. I mean, the truth is that Russia and Ukraine, uh, particularly Russia, a huge supplier of, of gas, huge supplier of oil, 
that puts huge pressure then on the global markets in terms of the price. While we're not directly getting um, gas from Russia, thankfully we have our own gas facilities in, in Corrib, which mm-hmm. of course a lot of people objected to over the years, but I mean they are supplying us at the moment. Uh, and that's we always have to be worried about our own energy security. We get it from Britain. The price, though, of course, is determined from uh, the global price. So all of this is going up all the time. And there's more bad news to come, unfortunately, because Russia and Ukraine are huge suppliers of wheat, basic food product for the world. Um, so, so, so the government, I think, every single week will be working to address the really serious fallout from this awful thing that Vladimir okay. let, let me just go back a little bit there Minister and talk about you know the unsustainability of the cost of fuel in this country and, and everybody is in agreement on that but how sustainable is it to implement measures long term to ensure that we have what would be considered a realistic price for fuel as you say those taxes are used for something else somebody has to pay for the shortfall somewhere so how sustainable is it well, Joe Biden was asked yesterday, what can you do about um, they call gas prices? And he said, nothing, um, very little. This is, this is what Vladimir Putin has done. Um, what the government here can do, because we've excise duties traditionally, and European countries traditionally have excise duties on fuel, is reduce the, the, the excise duties. But quite frankly, beyond that, um, the scope that the government has is extremely limited. That's why we'll be working with our European colleagues. Tishik is going to a European summit this week in France, uh, before the European meeting, see what we can do at a European level, and also that's working in conjunction uh, with, with America. I mean, this thing has got so serious now that I've read newspaper reports that Joe Biden is thinking of producing electric heat pumps en masse uh, through the Defence Industries Act in America to, to provide to Europe, um, because some countries in particular, which are much colder than us, um, will, will soon find it difficult to heat homes because of the price and uh, of gas and the shortage of gas. We're, in a, we're not in a war, but unfortunately... We're in a warlike situation uh, where products and services, etc., uh, are severely disrupted. And what we've got to do is keep putting the pressure on Putin uh, to stop this. Like it's, 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 it's just absolutely okay. scandalous what's going on. There are many people listening to this, and I'm sure you're, you're, you're familiar with what happened in the 70s during the oil crisis back in this country, where we had rationing, where we had um, public transport curtailed as a result of the, the lack of availability of fuel. Are we potentially heading down, down that road again? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not old enough to remember the queue price in the 70s, but I have read about it. I remember the queues well, Minister. I don't. I was born in 77, so I think just, just after that. But that's a reality that people, many listeners, uh, would have seen. I, I, look, I'm not going to predict it or speculate on this. I, I think that's not helpful. But I think, but no, but nonetheless, it's something that well, we may have to face it's up extremely to. Extremely serious. There, there, there probably isn't anything like this really since World War Two in terms of the effect it will have on supply chains of the global economy. Like we see now at a European level and our own Department of Agriculture, Minister McConnell as well, are now looking at what we can do to secure the food supply. I mean, we've never had to look at that, really. I mean, during the pandemic, we were a little bit worried about supply chains, but they held absolutely fast. So all of this is happening. It's happening on a day-by-day basis. It's about just under two weeks since Putin launched this uh, outrageous attack on Ukraine, and there have been massive global uh, ramifications on it and we're trying to the European Union and with America to put the screw on Putin and his oligarchs to try and prevent prevent this to stop this at this particular point and, 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 and to see uh, can we get can we get some normality back okay. to the world. But I, normality I, is gone for the moment. Okay, I'll, I'll, get to, I'll get to what's happening in the Ukraine in, in a moment but um, 
inextricably linked to that is what is happening here at home in other European countries. And let's talk about our own economy. Are you of the view it's robust enough in order to be able to sustain the impact of what the sanctions have? I mean, you, you touched on grain. The Ukraine's the ba- breadbasket of the world. 30% of our grain comes from there. We get fertiliser from, from Russia as well. We're going to be hit. There's no question about that quite significantly if this drags on. Are we in a robust frame financially and economically to deal with it? Yeah, look, I think we are ultimately. I mean, that's what I would say to people. I mean, look, there's, there's no getting away from the fact it's a very, very serious crisis. Um, we've come, I suppose, this has come at the spring. I think this would be far worse if this happened in September or October in advance of winter or at the harvest time uh, of wheat. Um, so we we have time to plan, but I mean, that time is getting short. So that's why they, uh, each government department at the moment is working out what do we do in this particular crisis situation. And there may not be an answer to the question you asked me now, and uh, there may not be an answer to the question that Taoiseach has asked in the doll at 12 o'clock, but be absolutely certain that the government and each government department is working round the clock to try to get answers to this situation, which is changing all the time. Um, and, that's, and that's the difficulty that we're in, and I think people understand that. Um, and we certainly won't be found wanting in uh, having our response to the crisis. And I'm really grateful we're part of the European Union because we can work together with our European colleagues uh, to make sure that we can put as much pressure as we can on okay. and also as much pressure as we can on the, on the prices as well because we, I think we really only have leverage at a global level at a European level on that Okay, as Minister for State for European Affairs you're probably best placed to understand you know, the complexities of what's happening in, uh, in the Ukraine at the moment and its implications it's having not just financially but from I suppose a, a human perspective um, you, you no doubt heard or probably heard clips of um, Vladimir Zelensky's speech to the Commons yesterday. I suppose it's fair to say it was probably Churchillian in tone when he, you know, when you think of Churchill fighting him on the beaches, he more or less was saying the same thing about Russian forces. Do you think it's misplaced optimism on his part when you consider the sheer magnitude of what's coming down the track in terms of the military might of Russia? Well, he has no option but to fight for his country. I mean, every country has a right to self-defense. That's just the reality. I mean, I think the thing that struck me yesterday from his speech uh, was the Shakespearean line, to be or not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he really knows how to strike a tone. He's done that for his people as well. And I think he's he's won the information war in the sense that people are getting a lot of, I mean, to, to, you know, a lot of positive information from his army or from his government in terms of what's happening to the Russian army. Now, the reality is that the, the situation for the people of Ukraine is just unimaginably grim at the moment. And I don't think we, it's, it's really, none of us can quite imagine uh, what's going on. As we, as I speak to you now, uh, there are families sheltering in underground car parks and bunkers in the metro stations. It is just incredible. People who just bought their house, like many, maybe listeners around here, and the, how the block of apartments has been blown up or whatever, are out forever. Um, and it's, it's really horrific and it's, it's, it's very difficult to understand that. So I think that human cost um, must always be at the forefront of our minds and whatever suffering we're having, uh, in Ireland economically it does nothing compared to uh, the direct effects and also we have to be very very careful at a global level um, as well not to escalate the situation now, Ireland isn't involved in military alliance but there's a lot of pressure to do things uh, in Ukraine I think there's pressure being resisted by the Americans and NATO and I think that's very very welcome because the last thing we want is an escalation of this particular conflict situation. Can I ask you, Minister, what was your view uh, in relation to moves by Poland to ship MiG fighters to an American German base and then to be subsequently sent on to Ukraine to keep, I suppose, the Americans uh, as a buffer on that? And and the the State Department said, not not on our watch. That's going to happen. What's your view? I mean, it's all to do with the no-fly zone. Are you are you in favour of it or against it? 
Well, I suppose, look, Ireland's a militarily neutral nation, so we're not getting involved in military alliances or the provision of lethal equipment, so I think it would be wrong. For me well, I mean, that, that's that's a debate for another day, whether we're neutral or not, and yeah, whether no, we should be in situations is, I think, I think like this. An Irish, an Irish government minister doesn't have a role in that or experience of it or knowledge of it to, really to, to get involved in the details of that. What I will say is that people do talk about a no-fly zone, and it does concern me because we've seen why the Americans, etc., don't want a no-fly zone, it's because they feel it would actually escalate the crisis. And these are really, and to be fair to people who are involved in these decisions, they're very, very difficult situations and, and difficult dilemmas because you see the suffering of people in Ukraine. You want to help, but you don't want to sort of spread out that suffering uh, to other neighbouring countries such as Poland and the Baltic. So it's an extremely delicate situation and I think people have been very, very careful what they say. Um, and I think that's why the Irish government has focused almost entirely uh, on the humanitarian response, which I think is where we excel at, where we've experience of, and I think where we can make uh, our country proud and, and be a shining light for, for, for the world in terms of peace. On, 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 that, on that humanitarian response, and I talk specifically about the number of refugees that are expected to come to Ireland, are you happy that we are in a position that we will be able to cope with the numbers coming here? Well, again, um, I know that Poland is finding it very difficult. They've, I think, a million, maybe Moldova, a tiny, extremely poor country, have had 300,000 go through, 100,000 have stayed behind in Moldova. These are unimaginable numbers for for countries like that. Um, Now, what I will say is what the EU has done is called the Temporary Protection Directive. It's never been done before, so so the people arriving from Ukraine will be in a different category to anybody else. The key word, I suppose, is temporary and then protection. Um, So we're going to protect people for a while by giving them healthcare, housing, education, the right to work. Uh, That's not going to be forever. Um, I think at at most it could be three years. I mean, that could be extended, but hopefully the thing will be uh, over by then. Um, so, so, so this is the first time this has happened. It is a pan-European response. There will be funding from the European Union for this as well. But of course, it's going to have an impact uh, on our on our public services. There's no question about that, and, and that's all part of the government response uh, at the moment. We've had, I'd say, we've had about two and a half thousand have arrived so far. Now, a good number of them will al- will already yeah. have had relatives in Ireland, but that the, the numbers who have relatives will decrease as a proportion of the overall amount of, as things go on. What's your view on the way Boris Johnson is handling this? I mean, he's talking about uh, biometric testing for refugees to come into the country. They arrive in Calais and they're told, sorry, you can't get any testing here. Go back to Lille. The numbers that are going in there is tiny compared to other countries. And, you know, we get Brexit and all that, that, but surely he has a moral obligation to step things up at at a much greater pace. Look, it's probably best if I don't get involved in, you know, competitive analysis between countries, I think, Certainly the European Union has adopted this temporary protection approach to, to migrants coming from, from the war zone. Look, Britain is giving help that, that we're not giving in terms of on the military side that the Ukrainians are looking for, uh, and we're not doing that. So you, you could ask the same question of us, why are we not providing guns or anti-tank missiles or whatever? So I think, from what I can see, countries are trying to do their best. There's an internal debate in Britain on how they deal with uh, migrants coming from Ukraine, and I think it's probably best for me as a, a, an Irish minister uh, not to get involved in that particular debate, but just to say this is what Ireland's doing. Um, it's going to be tough for us, um, but I think that we have uh, a moral obligation to do it. Well, what's your view on Charlie McConnellogue essentially mandating farmers to grow crops in order to deal with future food crises in this country? It's something, it's a proposal that has been absolutely booted out by the farmers. Is he handling this in, in a poor manner? No, I don't think so. I mean, Charlie would have gone last week to a meeting of European agriculture ministers where they all discussed what's the best possible approach to the crisis. Um, 
the reality is that the huge, as you said already, a huge proportion of the wheat that's used in Ireland and used around Europe uh, is produced in Russia and Ukraine. That presents a really serious difficulty. The other point is that a huge amount of fertiliser used in this country is produced in Russia. Um, so, so whether we like it or not, we're going to be affected by this. The Common Agriculture Policy is, I suppose, best known for giving funding to farmers and European payments to farmers. But one of the purposes of the Common Agriculture Policy is to ensure that we have food on the table in Europe because after World War II, we had food shortages, food rations, etc. And the whole point of the Common Agriculture Policy is not to give money to farmers, but to ensure that farmers are there and they can survive as a business and make a profit, but, but to provide food for all of us. So I think, I think look, let's let that discussion continue. Um, farmers have always risen um, to the challenge, and I've no doubt they will here. But I think, quite frankly, all of this has come as a shock uh, to, to all of us over the last few weeks. Just finally, I, I want to touch on what is unfolding in Russia at the moment in relation to the reaction of, you know, its citizens and how they are protesting or otherwise in relation to what Putin is doing. And it strikes me that, yes, many thousands of people have taken to the streets. Many thousands have been subsequently arrested. But are you disappointed in terms of the sheer outrage that has been uh, witnessed or vocalised amongst the citizens of Russia, particularly the younger people? No, I I can't say that I'm outraged because their television screens don't show the truth of what's happening. So a huge amount of Russian people are watching telly and think that Ukraine has done something wrong here. Um, You can go to jail for telling the truth, for using the word war, for example. Um, And many people have and many journalists have been killed. Uh, It's a very, very dangerous situation. However, the situation for Ukrainians is far more dangerous. So at some point, Russian people are going to have to rise to the challenge as well. I'm I'm not one for blaming Russian people. I think there are Russian people who suffer a lot of discrimination. But I think in this country, they can certainly speak out freely, and, and, and they probably should do. Uh, and around the world as well. Um, they're living in, a, in, like, you know, a Russian radio host can't ask uh, a local TD this, the questions you're asking me today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we have to value that. We have to value our democracy. We can't take it for granted that in this country, you can vote for who you like, you can say what you like, you, you, the free media can say uh, basically what they like as well. And these are precious values that they don't have in Russia. And the, the result then is that the Russian people are effectively brainwashed to, to a large degree. And that's very difficult to counteract. Okay, well, the people in this country have uh, clearly spoken out at their outrage in terms of what is happening over there. They've also spoken out in relation to the fact that we still have the Russian ambassador in situ in this country. What's your view? Should he go? Well, if he's going to go, I think we'll do it at a European level. Look, my biggest concern is we have three staff in Moscow, uh, three diplomats in Moscow, including our ambassador, and we obviously have I'm very cognizant of them um, I think everything that we do must have those people in mind as well and not just those people are diplomats but the Irish people that they serve in Russia too so so I have a huge amount of sympathy for the you know the outrage that's been expressed of course I do because the ambassador came on television and said things mm-hmm. that quite frankly weren't true um, but I, I, we just have to be very very careful because we have a lot of Irish people in Russia as well and they don't have the, you know, we don't have the protection. Russia doesn't have the protections of law that we have in Ireland here. OK, just finally, Minister, before I let you go, where do you think this will end? Will it end with the ultimate demise of Putin or will we see an escalation where he will try to push closer to the borders of Europe and to European member states and NATO countries? 
That's, that's why we have to stand firm. We have to stand united um, as European countries. We have to realise that some of the things that are going to happen in the next few weeks are completely outside of the control uh, of any particular government. Um, history has shown us that these dictators don't end well, but they can cause a lot of damage on the way. Uh, so we stand united. We look after people as best we can. And we use our voice, which we're doing very strongly. Uh, Geraldine Byrne-Nason from, from Drada has been an extremely strong voice at the UN, our ambassador there, uh, calling for peace, talking to the Russian ambassador directly uh, across the room in very, very strong terms uh, and working on behalf of Ukrainian people. And yesterday the focus was on uh, women uh, in Ukraine uh, as well. So, so we keep doing that. We keep putting the pressure on. The sanctions are definitely squeezing. Uh, and the question is, I don't think it's a question of if Putin will be squeezed, but when. Uh, and the, but that when could be a while away, and that's the difficulty that we have at the moment. Very good. Minister for State for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, thank you for joining us this morning. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. With fuel accounting for more than 41% of the cost of running articulated lorry fleets and the price of a barrel of oil now breaching $120, the Freight Transport Association of Ireland is urging the government to review its current diesel rebate programme to make it more accessible and efficient so that the inflationary pressures on the industry charged with delivering everything Ireland needs can be alleviated. Joining us this morning is CEO of the FTAI, Aidan Flynn. Aidan, good morning. You're very welcome to us. First of all, you must welcome the news overnight that the government are going to move in relation to excise and fuel at the pumps. Uh, yes, uh, good morning, Alan. Yes, look, we, we welcome that move, um, albeit a, a little bit late and a bit tardy, I suppose, but better late than never. I mean, we have to look back to October where the European Commission actually encouraged and provided uh, legal a framework for, for national authorities to deal with the energy crisis. So the energy crisis has started long before uh, the unfortunate events in the Ukraine, uh, but it's got to a stage now where something actually had to be done, uh, not just for uh, the individual, but also to support businesses as well. So we, we do welcome it. OK, the diesel rebate scheme came in to being, as I remember, back in the summer of 2013 or thereabouts, and people in the business will understand how it works. It's not complex, but for people like myself and our listeners who don't understand what it is, how it works and what the benefits are, perhaps you could just give it to us as if, you know, you're explaining it to a four-year-old like me. Well, look, it was good support for the haulage and PSV fleet sector, uh, but there's a good cohort of commercial fleet uh, distribution sector omitted from it, uh, certainly what we call the own account, the guys who, you know, deliver home heating oil, a lot of retail distribution, food distribution companies, people who distribute their own goods aren't included in or don't qualify for the rebate. But the rebate mechanism uh, was to uh, kick in um, after uh, the price of fuel would uh, go over a certain amount, I think it's around the one one euro twenty a liter, um, and it would be tracked by the CSO um, and monitored and managed by revenue, um, and with the maximum amount uh, refundable or uh, supported be seven and a half cent when the, the price of fuel went over one forty three a liter, which obviously it's done now for for quite a while. So there's been very few periods of time between twenty thirteen and now that it actually got to that level. Obviously, but but it has done over the last six or seven months. But one of the key issues for this, though, is that um, fuel purchasing fuel is a cash flow issue for for operators, and many in the haulage uh, sector are operating on very low margins. So you're purchasing your fuel uh, three months in advance, four months in advance. So you're hedging essentially. 
you're ba- yeah, but you're you're buying your food, but you're actually not able to to uh, process your rebate application um, uh, for three or four months after okay. you've actually purchased the fuel. So that that's a cash flow issue uh, for people. And the other issue, of course, is is that only one third of those that qualify for the rebate are actually participating in the scheme because uh, you know, and and this isn't for everybody. Some people just don't know how how to do it. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, guidance or information around uh, how you do it. Um, well, in fairness. Revenue Online, um, they have a fairly concise uh, step-by-step guide in relation to who is um, who is able to participate in it and how it works. Yes, but it should be made much more efficient in terms of supporting that cash flow piece. You know, and I think that that is the biggest challenge. Uh, you know, for it, and of course, you know, if if it's if it's if it's there for, for the industry. Why aren't more companies doing it? I think that's the big question. Okay, Aidan, let's just talk a little bit about what this means in real terms for people in the business. How much more are they paying for their fuel than they were last year? And what are the projected costs if the present status quo remains? Well, I think, uh, you know, when we were looking at, say, September to, you know, February this year, it, it has increased by around 30%. Um, and that has increased again on top of the 25% increase uh, from January 2021 20, to September. Um, and in the last week, what we've seen actually is, is 8% daily uh, increases in fuel. Sorry, um, 8, 8% daily, did you say? Yeah, yeah. So the volatility in the market is really, you know, in in the last week or so, where where you see the massive fluctuations in the price of a barrel of Brent crude oil, as you see, like we had mentioned even the other day, that it was 120, it's breached 120. Actually, today it's over 130 dollars because of of uh, the announcement by the US. And, okay, and and, and any good business will want to try and recoup these costs somewhere down the line. Are you doing that in terms of passing them on? Yeah, I think, look, in terms of, I can only speak for our membership who are made up of hauliers as well as the on-account sector. Um, most, if not all, have got surcharge, fuel surcharges built into their contracts. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the haulage operators out there who are small to medium-sized businesses operating five or six trucks really struggle to engage with their clients and consigners in relation to this. And I think it's really important now, you know, that the whole supply chain shows solidarity to uh, their hauliers um, in terms of understanding the pressures that are there in terms of cash flow issues around the price increases and to work with them in terms of developing these fluctuating surcharges dependent on you know where, where the price of fuel is going I think the measures that are going to be announced today in terms of the excise duty uh, reduction is very very welcome and, and it should stabilise the industry and give a bit more confidence okay. but you have to remember it's still a lot higher uh, you could be looking at a 185 a litre versus what it was like last September or October when the EU Commission announced the legal framework uh, for support where it was 160 a litre. So it's still a lot higher, um, you know, than we, we wanted, obviously. OK, um, well, uh, well, if if we can just bring this to its natural conclusion, then, when we talk about surcharges for the end user, ultimately the consumer is also going to be hit here because those who you deliver to and subsequently deliver on want to get their cost back in some shape or form. So we'll ultimately be hit, won't we? 
well, there's no doubt about it. This feeds into inflationary pressures, and we, and we see we're in exceptional circumstances. We've been coming out of uh, one issue after another with with um, you know post Brexit trade, the COVID situation. But I have to say, within the freight distribution logistics sector, the re- resilience and positivity in the industry just to get on with it and do their very best for everybody is plain to be seen. How we've dealt with those particular issues, but unfortunately, when when we are faced with these particular uh, circumstances that we now find ourselves in. Um, and where there is so much uncertainty around it, I'm saying we all have to work together and understand that, yes, the consumer is going to have to uh, bear some of the pain in relation to this because it is exceptional circumstances. But we can manage that kind of risk a little bit better by working together and alleviating those pressures too. OK, I, I just, time's against me here, and sorry for cutting across you, Aidan, but I want to talk to you about you know a suite of measures which should really be introduced by the government, not just to, to help yourselves, but in business in general. Do you think, given your own industry, that perhaps as part of those measures the government should be looking at something like tolls for example well, that's definitely um, a benefit if, if we could reduce the tolls. We've called for it. We've seen it work on trial basis before, and it actually works. It actually encourages uh, trucks to, to use the, the motorway um, uh, more than, than deviating off it, which, which obviously then has a, a benefit in terms of the environment, believe it or not. So th- there's all sorts of positive points in relation to that. We, we encourage our members through our Truck Safe Audit Scheme that we look at operational compliance for drivers and roadworthiness uh, to engage with us because uh, there's, there's schemes there that can actually help fund uh, more fuel-efficient uh, driving, like eco-driving and stuff like that. Sign up to EcoFleet, invest in these type of schemes because the payback, uh, it, you know, there's, there's a little bit of funding mm-hmm. uh, to support these training initiatives. And obviously, if you're buying a million euro of fuel each year, and you, you can save 20% by, by looking at aerodynamics, looking at tyre pressure, looking at driver training. You know, the, the capital cost of that okay. uh, is, is very minimal compared to what you'll save in the bottom line, particularly with the price of fuel at this level. Very good, Aidan. We must leave it there. Aidan Flynn, who is the CEO of the Freight Transport Association of Ireland. Thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme 086 1800 658. You can text or WhatsApp that number. You can call us on 041 983 The IFA, the Irish Farmers Association, say there's a short window of opportunity to prevent food shortages. The IFA says it's disappointed with a lack of urgency for putting plans in place for all farmers to grow crops this season. The IFA met with the Minister for Agriculture and his officials last night. And joining us this morning is Kieran McAvoy, IFA Grain Chairman. Kieran, thanks for joining us. I understand you attended that meeting virtually last night. It strikes me that the Minister, Charlie McConnell-Logue, is way out of kilter in terms of what the needs of farmers are. Would that be a fair reception? Um, yes, it would, Alan. Look, um, just first of all, let me start by saying, you know, um, I'd like to show our support and solidarity with the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian farmers. You know, we have a dreadful situation on that there's war on the continent of Europe and we can't underestimate the suffering and the uh, unbelievable situation of people who were, you know, farming up to and, and working up to two weeks ago are now at war. Uh, it's hard to believe. So look, just let me, uh, you yeah. know, show my sincere sympathy and support to those people. Listen, the meeting last night, we, we went in with a, you know, a very open mind, hoping that you know that the Minister would have a lot more proposals and it, it, they were very much lacking and, and, and practically none there. To be fair, there were seven farm organisations there in total, uh, you know, and each one of us were kind of uh, dismayed, I suppose, is the best way to put it. But look, um, 
you know, we have show, we have so we uh, on the grain committee we had an emergency meeting on Monday night. We are willing to do whatever it takes to 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 get through this food crisis. Um, you know, we won't be found lacking in in IFA on on any committee or any commodity. So look, at we are willing to do the work. We we did push it with the with the department and the minister last night. The time is 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 running out on this. Um, if we are to get extra crops sown, those most of those are going into what we call grass lays. Uh, if that's to happen, they need to be sprayed off probably next week. So okay. Just, uh, well, well, Kieran, I'm sorry for cutting across it because time I'm, I'm short for time here. But we oh, listen. Yeah. We listen to the minister Thomas Byrne outlining in very stark terms that we are facing a crisis. The longer this continues, that there will be food shortages. Thirty percent of our grain comes from the Ukraine. Our fertilizer comes from Russia. We will have to make changes and make them pretty quickly. Now, is it the fact that you are not happy that the minister tried to mandate you to sow wheat, or is it a case that he just didn't have the conversation with you? Where are you at with it? Listen, we, we, there, there is no mandate to sow anything uh, as of last night. No, there's not, but the minister, that was Tim Cullinan more or less said, we will not be told what to do by, by the minister in relation to this until there's some form of dialogue. Yeah, look, that's that's one part of it. It's very important that the minister and the department have dialogue with farmers. That started last night. Farmers won't be found uh, wanting for to do things. They, to, to, to come out with some kind of a statement to say that we were going back to something that happened, you know, in the 40s, um, you know, the skill set, the machinery, the, the, you know, the availability of inputs, everything has to be uh, discussed here and the viability of growing those crops. So, you know, it's, you know, we are hoping to meet again this week and, you know, get a proper plan together. And that proper plan, when does it have to be in place? Because you don't just plant seeds and they grow overnight. This takes time. It's seasonal. So when does it need to be activated in order to, you know, reap the, the benefits of the crop? It needs to be. It needs to be worked on immediately, and we have to have results. As I say, March is the the, the you know it's get, it's pushing on in some parts of the country. The more north you move, um, there's a little bit more time. But like you know, uh, by the first week of April, these crops need to be sowed uh, if they're going to be sowed. You know, I think um, the, you know time is running out, and that's why we were pushing last night that we'd have a, a, you know made more progress by now that there would have been a better plan in place by the minister. Uh, you know, and that that we'd have uh, moved on further. But look, at, we we were guaranteed more meetings this week, and you know, um, as I say, IFA and other farm organisations won't be found lacking for ideas and push on. Okay, as a farmer, how do you see this unfolding yourself in terms of the the farming landscape in Ireland? Do you think that this is only one of a number of changes or adaptations that the farming community will have to to undertake as this crisis unfolds? Look, at, I suppose I'm a tillage farmer here in County Leash, you know, and, and I'm a food producer and I've always been that and I've always stated that. And, you know, our policy in EU and at, at Irish level has, has shifted and has moved in a different direction. Uh, you know, and I think that has to change. I think we're in, in a, a, an unprecedented time where food is going to be the currency. I'm not trying to scare monger people anyways. There is fair supplies of food available in, in Ireland. We produce, uh, you know, enough food for 40 million people. We want to stay doing that. And, you know, um, you know, the, it has to change. There, there has to be a realisation that the tillage sector, which we have been pushing, is under pressure, has been under pressure between, uh, you know, policy and, and the availability of land for, for tillage. Great. We'll leave it there. Kieran McAvoy, IFA Grain Chairman, thank you for joining us this morning. 
Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Let me bring you some of the comments in relation to the cut on the cost of fuel at the pumps. Peter from Drogheda. I had to get petrol last night and it cost me €2.04 a litre. Couldn't believe it. This reduction isn't enough. It will only bring it down to the price it was last week. Frank from Dundalk. How can the government consider bringing in more carbon taxes with the cost of fuel at the moment? Do they not get it that many people are absolutely on their knees and can't afford to live? Incomes are not increasing in line with the cost of living and now the war is going to push fuel prices and food up even more. Very worrying. And Kira via Facebook, the proposed cut is only bringing the cost down to what it was last Thursday. They need to cap the price of a litre of petrol and diesel. If you want to text us or WhatsApp us, 086 1800 658. 81% of people in Ireland think the EU should consider boycotting Russian gas as part of the sanctions to oppose Putin's invasion of Ukraine, according to an opinion poll carried out by Ireland Thinks for Friends of the Earth. Asked what the EU should prioritise to replace Russian gas, a majority, 61% of respondents said, develop more renewable energy compared to only a small minority who supported building LNG, or liquefied natural gas terminals, in Ireland to import gas by ship. Joining us this morning to discuss the survey is Jerry McAvilly, Head of Policy of Friends of the Earth. Jerry, good morning. You're very welcome to us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's kind of strange that a war has, it has taken a war in essence to manoeuvre us to a position where we have to think about this seriously, is it not? It is indeed, it is indeed. And I think we'd all wish that we we weren't, that it hasn't taken something completely awful like this to put us in this situation but the, the reality is, from both a climate perspective and for you know, solidarity with the people of Ukraine, now is the time to end the, the, the Europe's reliance on uh, Russian gas. I mean, in Ireland, we don't, essentially, we don't uh, receive Russian gas because a, a majority of our gas comes from the UK. However, it does have uh, what's happening in the Ukraine and the necessary steps from both, you know, Europe and the US is having, and, and also previous previous problems and tensions has resulted in the massive increases in energy prices that we that we've seen. So, okay, I mean, Jerry, really well, it's a time to move away. You know, of course it is, but I mean, moving away from it is something that is not going to happen quickly. It will take time to develop strategies. It will take time to change the mindset of individuals. That's happening, but some would say, albeit slowly. So what is the best way to map this out, to get us to a point where we don't have the same reliance on those fossil fuels from the likes of Russia and move to a more sustainable model? It can be a very painful journey. Well, look, I think... It is a journey that is not simply painful, but one, A, that has to be done from a moral perspective, but B, can provide real benefits to people's quality of life. So if we plan our our cities better, if we plan our heating systems better, if we make homes more energy efficient, if we put the right supports in place, particularly, you know, for people on lower incomes or people vulnerable to fuel poverty, this movement away from gas particularly, well, and oil, can provide real benefits. So I I wouldn't want to make it seem that this is simply an exercise in sacrifice. To answer your question, though, what do we actually need to do? I don't want to give anyone the impression that in any sense of the word that this is simply a case of turning the tap off, that Ireland or any country for that matter is simply going to turn off 
oil and gas. No, and, and that's my point. It's a long, long it plan. It is. And look, to answer your question, and I think the government has started this process, but it now needs to be massively ramped up. First of all, we need significant increase in making our homes much more energy efficient. I've seen a lot of analysis in the past few days that energy efficiency is energy security. In other words, the the energy we don't use is the best way of both reducing our bills and ending reliance on gas. So that really means providing supports to people to retrofit their homes, which acknowledge if you're doing a full retrofit is not expensive, or sorry, it is expensive and it's not easy, but you, uh, significant steps can be made, even just improving the level of insulation in people's homes. And I think the real focus there needs to be on people on lower incomes. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, I, I think in Friends of the Earth, we have a major campaign on no new gas infrastructure. We don't want things like LNG terminals or new offshore fields that are going to lock us into a reliance on gas in the in the long term. And in addition to that, we do, we and this, there are plans in place, but we need to significantly increase the levels of offshore wind and solar in Ireland to replace okay. current reliance on gas. Jerry, you'll probably hang up the phone on me when I ask you the next question, and that is, is it now time to have an educated conversation around nuclear energy? I, I wouldn't hang up the phone with you at all. I mean, this is it's a very fair question. Like, I, I want to state at the outset that, like, nuclear, given that it doesn't have, the, you know, these highly polluting emissions associated with um, oil and gas that we use in our homes, it's quite natural that people raise it. Now, we would, in Friends of the Earth, we would have major issues with um, the waste and management of waste uh, associated with these plants that's leaving aside very substantive other risks. But perhaps what's the most important uh, point for people to understand around nuclear in Ireland is that it would take years, if not decades, to overcome economic, technical, social, political barriers to introduce a nuclear power station in Ireland. And the basic point is we do not have the time. We have expertise in other industries that we need to focus on and which uh, where there are not these huge challenges uh, which we need to prioritise ahead of nuclear, you know? Well, there is a degree, I suppose, of hypocrisy on the part of the government and the Irish people when we consider that we're connected to the UK grid. 20% of their electricity is generated in the UK. It's provided by nuclear energy. We're talking about the Celtic inter- interconnector with France, of which 70% of their electricity is generated by nuclear energy. So by default, we are, you know, buying into the whole nuclear energy well, look, you see, I'm not sure I, I take your point in the sense that, you know, there is, you can, you can say that there are electrons coming from nuclear every so often into Ireland. But, you know, no one, either my, yourself or myself, has woken up in the morning and said, I want those electrons. Look, they're part of the UK's and France's energy mix, and therefore they do come across here. I mean, what, the, the decisions we can take or what government can take is what type of investment 
in energy infrastructure. We well, well, you know, they say, Jerry, there's, there's nothing like a crisis to focus the mind. We have a crisis here yeah. and we will be facing down the barrel of a crisis in the coming months in terms of accessibility of energy. So more immediately, what do we do? Well, I think, in the, I, as I said, in the short term, I think, number one, we need to really make sure, both from a, a health, climate, environment and economic perspective, that we massively ramp up the levels of um, retrofitting in homes to make sure people are using less oil and gas and that people are not in the same um, situation in the coming winter. And that means that the levels of supports, particularly for the most vulnerable, have to increase. I would also say that there have been some suggestions that Ireland should sink money into a new uh, LNG import terminal. That, that would simply lock Ireland, while, would, while it would provide a different source of gas, that's not going to reduce the cost of that gas, which relates to world markets. So I would be saying that government should not be um, investing and indeed should be respecting the current um, government policy that is in place. There's a currently a moratorium on LNG in Ireland that should be um, respected and extended. And then lastly, I mean, I think from a, from a renewables perspective, uh, the levels of offshore winds does need to, does need to be increased, as does solar as well. Should it become mandatory that the government just press ahead and do what is required as opposed to getting into consultation? Well, I would say I would say definitely not. I mean, the most important thing and what us and Friends of the Earth, what we've been really working hard on is that the only way we can have a, an energy transition that is inclusive, that is uh, that respects all points of views and also that is the most appropriate to the local community and the local environment is by making sure that people are engaged and consulted with from the get-go. Well, you see, so hey, hey, Jerry, I'm, I'm sorry for cutting across you, but I say it in the context of particularly wind energy, where there has been numerous cases of not in my backyard. We're all for it, mm. but don't put it in my back- backyard. That's reasonable, isn't it? Well, I think, you see, I'm just conscious of painting, what's the word, what's the phrase, everyone with the one brush. Now, uh, my personal view is that when it comes to uh, objecting to, to certain wind farms, we have to look at each case individually, and there may be, it might be right for people to raise certain concerns. I mean, it's not all, they say, vexatious, you know, complaints. Um, but I, it's probably important for you know listeners to understand that in the coming years there's going to be much more of a focus on offshore wind. Now that doesn't mean that onshore wind has been abandoned, but we're significantly going to increase levels of um, offshore wind as well. And just lastly, I think it's also important for your listeners to understand that like a, a significant proportion of um, Ireland's electricity demand is projected to be taken up by large energy users like data centres. And we need to be very mindful that we're not simply building out um, our energy infrastructure only to meet the needs of large energy users like data centres, you know. Jerry, can I just ask you before I let you go, um, you remember back and the world remembers back to Greta Thunberg in relation to the cause du jour that she took up, which was related to, you know, the green movement, sustainability, etc. And, you know, the headlines, the international headlines she made. 
Was there momentum from that? Did it carry on or has it always been there? But sometimes it's in the media spotlight, other times it's not. What was the net effect? What do you think the net effect of what she did was? I think that's like the short answer to that question is you would not believe the level of interest that uh, Friends of the Earth gets and the amount of contact and emails from uh, younger people, from students, and also from actually from older people, from people in residence associations and community groups. So I think uh, Greta Thunberg has done unbelievable work to raise the level and awareness of climate action in the national consciousness and to really hold government to account. And while I agree that perhaps we, well, we have not seen the level of action necessary, there has been certain improvements, and I would say uh, improvements in terms of uh, the amount of focus on climate action that there now is, and thankfully is, and thanks to you, in the media. You know, particularly we would have seen around uh, COP, the big climate conference last year. It didn't perhaps produce the results we wanted, but the, the amount of attention and engagement and uh, media focus was really impressive. All right, we leave it there. Jerry McAvilly, Head of Policy at Friends of the Earth. Thank you for joining us this morning. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. 086-1800-658 if you want to text or WhatsApp us this morning. Just before we get into our next item, I just want to remind listeners that they may find some of the content of this next piece disturbing. So just bear that in mind. A man has been jailed for four years for cleaning up the house where 17-year-old Keen Mulready Woods is believed to have been murdered in 2020. Jared McKenna allowed a criminal gang to use his home at Rathmullen Park in Drogheda County Lath but claimed he didn't know what was going to happen there. Our courts correspondent Frank Graney joins us online with a background to this particular case. Uh, Frank, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Perhaps you could give us some background and put this into context for us. Yes, no problem. Good morning to you and your listeners, Alan. And uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with the case of Keane Mulready-Woods. Keane Mulready-Woods was 17 years of age when he went missing in January of 2020. He was living uh, as you say, in Drogheda with his mother and his sister and his brothers. And it was his mother who reported him missing on January 13th, 2020. His last confirmed sighting was at about six o'clock the previous evening. Um, he was seen on CCTV in a local shop not far from where it's believed he was murdered. Later that evening then at about 9.45pm, uh, we heard some members of the public who were out for a walk in Kulak in Dublin stumbled upon a, a sports bag and human remains were found inside that bag. In the early hours then of the following morning, we heard a human skull was found in the boot of a burning car in a laneway in Drumcondra, also in Dublin. Uh, Those remains were taken away for forensic analysis, and they proved to be a match for Keane Mulready-Woods. And that wasn't the last uh, grim discovery, because we heard that more of Keane's remains were found last year near where it's believed that he was murdered. Post-mortems took place uh, on those remains, but the cause of his death uh, was described as um, unascertained, which basically means the pathologist wasn't able to establish a cause of death. Um, Jared McKenna's role in all of this, I think it was accepted in court at nauseum that he had nothing to do with what happened to Keane Mulready Woods. He wasn't involved um, with the gang suspected to be uh, responsible, but he did allow this criminal gang to use his home uh, in Drogheda, which is actually just a short walk from where Keane Mulready Woods 
and lived with his uh, family. He, uh, he insisted, and again, it was accepted, that he didn't know what was going to happen uh, when he handed over his house for this criminal gang uh, to use. Uh, but he did, um, at the behest of the criminal gang, clean up the house afterwards, um, and he did remove some evidence from the house. And I suppose that's how he found himself in uh, the guard of crosshairs. Um, he pleaded guilty to uh, that charge, and he was, as you say, jailed for four years yesterday. What do we know about Keen Mulready Woods? We know that there was you know, gang involvement here in relation to this horrific murder. Yeah, as I, as I say, a criminal gang um, is suspected of, of murdering the 17-year-old back in, in January of, of 2020. And I think we have to tread very carefully because there are two uh, men charged with his murder due to stand trial before the non-jury special criminal court uh, next month. Um, April 25th, I think that trial is due to get underway before the Special Criminal Court and it's expected to take up to six weeks. So I suppose we just need to be careful in what we talk about in relation to those um, because that will come before the courts in due course. But what I can tell you about Jared McKenna is that he was living in a two-bed council house in Rathmullen Park and Drogheda, again, not far from where Akeem Mulready Woods lived. And Garthy became aware um, that there was p- some potential evidence in his house, that his house might be relevant to their investigation into uh, Keane Mulready Woods' disappearance and, and subsequent murder. They were operating on confidential information that they received. They went to uh, a district court judge and they were granted uh, a warrant to search uh, Mr. McKenna's home. They executed that warrant on, on January 14th, uh, 2020. Uh, we heard that Jared McKenna was there when they went into the house. He was on his own in that house. And it was very obvious from the moment, I suppose, that they crossed the threshold that um, something was amiss. There was a very strong smell of paint in the house. Uh, In the living room area, it was clear that it had been freshly painted. Um, A new floor had been put down that particular area. Uh, But despite the best efforts of Mr. McKenna to, I suppose, wipe any forensic evidence from his home, uh, he certainly wasn't successful because Garthy could see blood staining on the walls and ceiling behind that fresh coat of paint. A blood spatter was found in various other locations across the living room. They found a part of a large L-shaped settee in his backyard that also had some blood staining on it. The rest of that piece of furniture was found in a green area not far from his home. Uh, It had been set on fire, uh, but the burn site also revealed some uh, crucial evidence to the investigation. We heard there was a ballistic stab vest found there that had Keen Mulready Woods' blood on it. It was a box of Swiss Army knives and a rubber glove that also had his DNA on it. Um, inside the house, they found the keys to a car that was parked in the laneway behind Jared McKenna's house. This was a red Toyota Corolla. And in the boot of that car, we heard that an axe was found with blood on the handle. A bone fragment was also found. Uh, McKenna was arrested and taken in for questioning. And during the course of those interviews with Gardy, he initially denied any involvement in cleaning up the crime scene or... Um, of removing evidence in such a way. But he, he eventually did make, make those admissions and he said that he was acting um, at the behest of a criminal gang and his barrister in mitigation, I suppose, that in previous occasions said that these are the type of people that you didn't say no to, that when they asked you to do something, you simply did it. Just finally, Frank, before we leave it, did the judge have anything to say when sentencing? He, he did. Um, Mr Justice Paul McDermott was, was the judge that, that sentenced him uh, yesterday and... Um, you know, on that point that Jeremy McKenna wasn't a member of the gang, wasn't involved in the murder and, and wasn't there when it happened, that, that was all accepted by, by the Gardaí, it was accepted by the court. Um, but 
Mr. Justice McDermott said yesterday that McKenna would have known or he at least would have suspected or believed that Keane Mulready Woods had been killed in his house when he was there uh, on his hands and knees literally cleaning up the crime scene. Um, he accepted, the judge accepted the impossible position that McKenna found himself in and he also accepted his remorse as genuine, Alan, but he made some interesting points specifically in relation to McKenna's case, but also more generally for others who I suppose might find themselves in a similar predicament. Um, he told McKenna that he didn't appear to care what they did in his home. Granted, he didn't know what they were going to do in his home, but he didn't seem to care. Uh, he just didn't expect it to be murder. And without knowing the intimate details of what was going to take place there, the judge said it was clear that he knew what he was doing was terrible and wrong. And he said, more dangerous criminals can thrive if people are minded to help them in such a way before adding that turning a blind eye and assisting criminal gangs is the essential bedrock of their success and must be discouraged. And the sentence that he eventually handed down, and he had a maximum penalty of 10 years imprisonment available to him, but obviously taking all of the mitigating factors into account, especially that guilty plea. Um, he settled on a sentence of five years and three months. He suspended the final 15 months of that. So Jared McKenna uh, was jailed for four years, essentially, yesterday. Frank Graney, our courts correspondent, thank you for joining us this morning. We want to return to the cost of fuel at the pumps coming down possibly at midnight tonight once the government green lights an initiative put to a special cabinet meeting this morning and go to the head of uh, communications with AA Ireland Paddy Common Paddy good morning to you good morning Alan how are you one question that seems to be popping up time and time again from our listeners this morning is that why are we seeing such a fluctuation of prices at different garages around this county particularly yeah, there, there, are, there are a lot of price changes. Um, it, it really does depend on the on the retailer, and it depends on when they take deliveries. So often, some retailers, some smaller retailers, might, might not take deliveries uh, every day. Some take it twice a day. So that has seen the the volatility in the pricing. It depends when they bought okay. their consignment, if you like. But what we are seeing, and what your listeners will notice, is that diesel has increased a lot and is almost on parity now with petrol. Uh, and I'm told by um, the powers that be that that was is because a lot of the Russian supplies now have been cut off, and that it's you know people aren't taking supplies from Russia, so they're going to other countries for it, and then it's just really a case of supply and demand. Oil has hit one thirty dollars a barrel um, overnight, so that is that's that's something that is out of the government's control. Mm-hmm. So um, that that is accounting for a lot of the price increases, obviously, then with the duties applied uh, domestically. Well, Paddy, a lot of us will be trying to uh, take measures to reduce the amount of fuel that we use in our cars. And there are ways and means in which you can do that. The most uh, uh, recognised one is reduce speed. But there's more we can do than that, isn't there, Paddy? Yeah, as you said, I mean, the, the, the reduced speed one, I suppose, can't be, can't be overlooked because it, it does make a huge difference. And in, 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 in some cases, it's... Uh, you know, if you're driving on a motorway in particular, if you drive reduced down to say 100, 100 kilometres versus 120 kilometres, that can make a huge difference. The other thing I would say as well is, is to one thing people can do is look at their tire pressures, and it's something that we don't do enough. Uh, it's something you should do as a motorist about every two weeks is to adjust the tire pressures. You'll find the tire pressure, the correct tire pressure inside the door of your car generally, um, just down by the by the footwell. And if you do that, that will make quite a difference in terms of your fuel economy because we know that if your tyres are underinflated by about 10%, that it has a 2% uh, 
adjustment to the fuel economy. So, and often people's tyres are actually underinflated way more than that. Thing is, things as well you can do are to just strip out the weight of the car. Um, people often leave things like golf clubs and, and you know kids' rugby equipment or whatever else in the car. All of that adds up, and that can adjust as well. But it's also a little bit about anticipation when you're out on the road. A lot, the, a lot of the energy used by a car is in order to get it moving again from a standstill. So, if, especially if you're driving locally and you know the roads, take that little bit of time to anticipate when you need to slow down coming up towards the junction rather than you know, driving, accelerating, and then suddenly stopping at the junction. Um, and, and really, just measures like that will make quite a difference, especially as well using the gears um, mm. more appropriately. Question for you, Paddy. You talk about trying to strip out weight in a car. Should I therefore not fill my car to the brim when I'm at the forecourt, or should I put in 20 quid every couple of days? What's the best you, way to do it? I mean, I, that's, that's probably not going to make a massive amount of difference, but what we would say generally is that you should generally buy by the litre rather than by monetary values because it does give you a better indication of what you're paying. Uh, obviously, with the prices as they are, people are paying more attention, and, and the average fill now is about €100 Euro per car, um, which compares, you know, if you add that up to the year, it's about €2,500 per year that people are spending on, on fuel versus, which is about €1,000 more than two years ago. But, you know, at the moment, I think people are probably encouraged to uh, to shop prudently. I know it's difficult and maybe pity to say to shop around, but there are significant enough differences still between local retailers and some of the ones you'll see on motorways or or in the city centre in Dublin. So um, for now, at least, I'd say, yes, do um, do fill up, but uh, don't, you know, make sure your consumption isn't any more than normal because we could, we are getting an indication that prices will, will reduce, uh, certainly by midnight tonight. Okay, just finally, Paddy, before we go, I mean, we've plugged this particular hole in relation to the escalation of cost of fuel by virtue of what the government is doing. It's not really sustainable long term, is it? Is it your anticipation in the AA that we're going to see fuel prices continue to escalate in relation to looking at the price of a barrel of oil? Yeah, look, I, I think there aren't, there aren't, this isn't a long term solution, but we know that they have signals that things like electric cars need to be at the fore, and we have seen an increase in those. But I think any of us have just been asking for a, a temporary measure, at least, just to take the pressure off. We know electric cars are the future. But um, I, I think it's going to be, it's certainly it's a short-term measure. I, I think, Alan, just while you're there, I think yeah. we have just got news in um, that the Cabinet have agreed to cut excise 20 cent on petrol and 15 cent on diesel and it'll be in place until the end of August and will cost €320 million. Euros. So that's literally just happened. Now. No better way to end an interview than with good news. Paddy Cummins, Head of Commun- Communications with AA Ireland, thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Just in case you missed it, 20 cent per litre on petrol, 15 cent a litre on diesel. That's the reduction which has been uh, underpinned by the government following their cabinet meeting this morning. So they're the reductions that you can expect at the petrol pumps. Presumably they will kick in by midnight tonight. A couple of your comments, Mary from RD, thinks the cost of petrol is madness and feels especially sorry, particularly for young people. She says people give out about young people, but it's very challenging for them to get driving because of the long wait for a test. Then having to have someone accompany them during their licence 
ridiculous cost of insurance and now the cost of petrol. Ellen via Facebook says that at one petrol station in Drogheda it was 209.9 cent a litre this morning and at another it was 192.9. How can it be so different? And Paul via Facebook says the cost of petrol diesel is rising by the day and the only way to help motorists is to cap it at around 170 slash 180 for every petrol station. Now, the number of households seeking help of St. Vincent de Paul in the first two months of this year has increased by 30% compared to the same time last year. The Society has welcomed the €200 energy credit, which has been given the green light and signed into law by the President. Nesson Vaughan is Chair of Vincent de Paul Social Justice and Policy Committee and joins us online this morning. Nesson, thanks for taking our call this morning. Um, I, I was certainly taken aback and shocked by the 30% increase in help. I mean, those sort of figures you would expect to hear back in the day during the recession in 2010-2012. Why the significant increase? Yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, I, I think it's primarily due to the uh, rise and the significant rise in the cost of living that we are all hearing about. And yeah, hence you, you've also mentioned some of the government measures, uh, mitigating measures, um, like we know that uh, a rise in, in in utility bills, cost of utility bills, as a result of rise in uh, energy prices and indeed rising in food, impacts disproportionately on people on low incomes. So, it's from our point of view, we're, we're not really surprised. And what sort of help are you being asked for from individuals, and the sort and type of individual that is seeking help? Yes. Um, the sort of help, of course, it's varied, but an increasing number are looking for help either with their utility bills or food. And people are constantly juggling um, those uh, uh, decisions up or those bills up. Which will I pay? Will I, if I make sure that we have adequate food on the table, it might mean I can't pay my bill, I can't pay my bill in full, I maybe can't pay my rent. Uh, or if I pay my rent and pay my electricity bill, uh, I can be short of food. So they're really they're related uh, to, to each other. But they would be the, the more common ones in, in recent times. But of course, we get requests for all sorts of expenses and unplanned and unanticipated mm-hmm. as well. The people we help, Alan, are, are many, really, and varied. Um, um, you know, people renting in private rent accommodation in. Um, uh, local authorities, uh, lone parents, uh, low-income households uh, who even were working might be under working payment, the working the family payment. Um, if people come to us for the first time ever, they've never come to us before. They've never come to us before. Perhaps would have contributed to the society's influence in Nepal. It's disturbing that you should mention the fact that families are approaching Vincent de Paul because of issues around food. In Ireland in 2022, that's just not acceptable. And are, are, are we seriously saying that there are hunger issues amongst families in this country? Yes, there are. Uh, people in, uh, people go to food banks, as we know, and even go to other services besides ourselves, where you can see them, um, Brother Kevin and the Capuchins as well, on a daily basis, people queuing for food. Yes, there are. Uh, um, it is a situation where there, there is food poverty, um, yep, and it's, it's a function overall of overall poverty. So, as I said already, that people are juggling to you know around choices to make. You know, if I make sure I have enough food, I can't pay the bills. Maybe I can't keep the roof over my head. 
So, yes, unfortunately, that, that is Ireland of today. We do live in an unequal society. And do we expect the likes of Brother Kevin and Penny Dinners to pick up the slack where the mm. government should be really doing something about this? And it begs the question, mm. why are Penny Dinners and Brother Kevin in existence in Ireland today? Yes, indeed, it does beg, it does beg those questions. <clears throat> um, I'm not saying there's always easy answers to these, but we, we do, um, through our social justice uh, team, we, we make submissions to government on you know policy recommendations to government. We do a, a major... Um, pre-budget submission each year. We engage with politicians, with ministers, with government departments and state agencies seeking to influence um, policy decisions. Uh, We're successful to an extent, but obviously not fully. It's a basic human right to have food on the table, to be able to feed your family, to be able to feed children. And on that point with children, are we seeing children going to school not having been able to get food at home and have to rely on a school? Yeah, well, you do. You you hear that, Alan. You hear you you do hear that too from schools, from teachers, and teachers in primary school often say children are coming coming in hungry. Now, they've extended the school meals program. Government have extended the school meals program recently. Something which we very much welcome. How, how can you learn on a hungry on a hungry stomach? So we 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 yeah, there, there are people who are not uh, who are hungry going to school. Historically, we've always uh, viewed the Vincent de Paul as an organisation where the less well-off in society would have to get in contact in order to get the basics, food, furniture, whatever, help with utility bills. Are you finding that has flipped slightly that you have the more, and I don't want to get into a class war here, but the more, you know, affluent middle class types would, would be making contact with you now? Well, we have people who are working, um, you know, it used to be said, you know, if you're working, you're, that's, the, that's, that's the most effective way out of poverty. Yeah? And some people even come to us, they think, oh, we, we don't help because uh, they're working. Because the only criterion we apply is need. Um, so there are people increasingly who are, who are working um, and maybe who, who are, you know, low pay or reduced hours or on the working uh, family payment or they're defaulting on their uh, mortgages. <clears throat> so we're still feeling the repercussions of the crash of the, finan- and the, uh, of the banks and the financial crisis in what, 2008, I think it was. And that's still mm-hmm. impacting on people. So, yeah, we, we all sorts of people, I mean, predominantly poorer people, of course, but there are people who hit maybe a bad uh, a bad phase of their lives, maybe who are you know, what you might call middle-class people, but by the time they pay all their bills, they may qualify for no state support. But you know, but but when they pay everything, they have very little left. So they may, you know, then contact us. And as I said, you know, it's just need. We just look at what our, our, our assessment is just based on need. Can I ask you, Nesson, is there a reluctance? on the part of some people to get involved in organisation, get involved with organisations such as the Vincent de Paul to seek help because it seems somewhat of a stigma yeah. to go down that road. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there is. There's no doubt about that, Alan. <clears throat> we have sp- spoken to families when we, like we do visits now and thankfully we're back doing family visitations again for COVID. It stopped us uh, go getting into the homes, you know, to talk, so we're re-engaging, which is great, but it's when one re-engages at maybe a face-to-face level, they might say, oh, I'm ashamed, I, you know, I, I thought about ringing you, I didn't want to, somebody encouraged me, you know, I, I am ashamed, sometimes they would say. So there, there is that, there's no doubt, and I'm sure there are other people out there who would need our help, but who are reluctant to pick the phone up because it represents something maybe 
uh, for them that, uh, that you know around the stigma or around shame but you know we would always appeal to people not to be ashamed uh, we're, we're, we're a Christian organisation we don't pass judgment on people without help and many of the people who are as I said earlier who are experiencing difficulties financial difficulties at the moment have been in the past generous to us and no doubt will be generous again and in terms of generosity, those of us who are in a position who are able to help in some shape or form, what do you require from us? Well, any, of course, we always welcome donations, uh, Alan. Um, you know, you can, people can go online to you know, svp.ie. Um, they can ring our, our, our head office, 8, 01-884-8200. If they have any connection with a local conference of Vincent de Paul, we're in every single parish, I would say, in the country, in the 32 counties of Ireland. Uh, they may well know someone there uh, locally if they want to do it. But, um, yeah, the phone or online, uh, we very much welcome uh, welcome all, 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 all donations. And people, I just want to say, you know, Irish people, and people in the country, not just Irish people, people living in Ireland, are extremely generous to us. Nesson, before I let you go, that 30% figure, in light of what you have listened to, and no doubt the majority of people understand what's going to happen with food increase, uh, yeah. price of food increases, fuel, etc., 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 that 30% presumably will be a multiple of that this time next year if things continue. Could could well be, Alan, could well be. We, we, you know, we'll be working, trying to seek, you know, to influence government to introduce measures, mitigating measures to protect those who are most vulnerable. We'll continue to do that. We'll continue to advocate on behalf of people, and we will do our very best to, to try and see, to try and ensure that government takes takes uh, uh, appropriate measures. But no doubt, you know, there will be people fall between the cracks. There will no doubt be people who will be impacted disproportionately on the on the increasing costs. There's there's very little doubt about that. But we will be there to help as far as we can. Nesson Vaughan, chair of the Vincent de Paul Social Justice and Policy Committee. Thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Welcome back. A couple of your comments, Mairead from Drogheda. You'd worry that organisations such as Vincent de Paul will suffer a loss in donations because of the fact that so many of us are giving what we have to the Ukrainian humanitarian crisis. When you hear of children going hungry in Ireland in 2022, it also begs the question, how are we going to feed the expected 100,000 refugees due to come to Ireland. International Women say this is a piece we covered yesterday. Paula from Dundalk enjoyed your discussion with the local female politicians yesterday and I agree that it will be lovely to see more women going into politics but it's a big sacrifice to make if you have to be in the doyle until 1am in the morning or late into the night on some occasions especially if you live far away from Dublin. It's something that should be looked at. If you want to text us or WhatsApp us 86 658 Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne brought a motion to the March meeting of Drogheda's municipal district seeking a temporary installation of pedestrian rainbow crossroads at the Thostal area to celebrate Drogheda Pride 5th to 7th of August. There would be adjacent rainbow crossings next to the existing pedestrian crossings at the bottom of Peter Street, Lawrence Street, Shop Street and West Street. The written response received by councillor Byrne was... And I quote, the council will not be providing the markings as requested as all crossings 
are installed using solely the standards set out by the roads traffic regulations. And Councillor Byrne joins us this morning. Councillor, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, Good morning, Alan. On the face of it, it's pretty innocuous and inoffensive what you're asking for, but them is the rules and rules are there not to be broken. So maybe we should just take this on the chin and try again next year. Yeah, um, look, I was a bit surprised at the level of resistance that I met in response to this motion. Um, I actually thought it would be something that would be embraced um, and rolled out with ease. The the wording of the motion, I had actually included um, examples of how this has been done um, in five other local authorities around the country. It's been done in Limerick City, Galway City, in two areas by Dublin City Council, it's been done in Wexford and it's been done in Arklow and County Wicklow. Um, so what I had proposed was the rainbow crossings adjacent to the current pedestrian crossings because I had researched the regulations in relation to pedestrian crossings and they do need to be black and white. So I was kind of hoping the ones alongside them wouldn't impact with them and haven't impacted um, with them in several other locations throughout the country. But I was never to know um, and a firm no and it's just something that was very disappointing in considering the pride community in the town has built up massively over the last mm-hmm. six years like there's well, two phenomenal groups there in the LGBT group and outcomers in Drogheda that provide education and awareness to their members and support on an ongoing basis and it's grown massively over the last few years so it was just a, a, a token gesture, it's menial in the, in the whole scheme of things but it's something that would have meant an awful lot to the people in that community. Can I ask you this question, if you had gone to the council and said to them I want to do this in support of Ukrainian refugees coming to this country and use the colours of the flag of the Ukraine. Do you still think you would have been turned down? Yeah, yeah, I do. I don't think, um, you know, I, I, I do feel the council let themselves down. I don't think they gave the motion the due diligence it deserves, but I don't think it was because it was for pride. Um, I just think it was something that was dismissed without a thorough thought um, and perhaps the exploration of how it could be rolled out and it could be implemented. Um, I think if I if I did ring them up today and say, look, I want to do it in the Ukrainian colours, I, I think it would be the same answer at the moment. But I am in contact, I have contacted um, the five other local authorities that have done this um, just to see how they've implemented it and managed to keep in line with the guidelines. We intend to bring that back to Lag County Council and perhaps to see if we can review this at a further stage. You wanted to use this as part of, I suppose, highlighting inclusivity and also to promote inclusivity in Drogheda. Do you feel that there is a need to do that? Do you get the sense that maybe we could do better in terms of the way we embrace different cultures, different religions, different sexes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that we always need to improve, but it does no harm to show our support. Um, this would have been a visual, a visual gesture. It would have added a bit of colour to the town centre itself. It would have brought a bit of fanfare, so to speak, to the Pride Parade. Um, you know, and it would have sent that message of solidarity. The Pride group had their first parade in the summer of 2019. There was huge attendance. There was hundreds in attendance. It was a massive day. It was nearly like a mini St. Patrick's Day coming through the town. And they've missed out in building on that over the last two years with COVID. So there's going to be a massive effort put into getting that back up and running this year. And I just thought this was something 
Um, they, well, they, they actually brought this request to me, mm. should I say, you know, looking for this to enhance the visibility and the, visual, the visualisation of the rainbow colours for Pride. And it would have been something that would have just sent that solidarity message. It's not to say that we're not an inclusive town. I firmly believe that we are. Um, the LGBT group and many others are shown tremendous respect and support by the people of this town. But it was just that visual thing to offer that little bit of colour and that little bit of fanfare. And how have the LGBTQ community um, reacted to... They're very, they're very disappointed. They had an online poll, um, both on Facebook and Instagram last week, um, which I think got a, a few hundred responses, and 97% were voting of their own supporters and community were voting for one of these. Um, so they're very disappointed, you know, and, and it's, it's a slap in the face to them. But they're resilient, you know. They they just said, "Well, look, what can we do now? How can we how can we pursue this or something different?" So we we took that notion yesterday. We contacted the department. We contacted the other five local authorities, and we'll see what they come back with okay. in response and see if there's a way we can work with that county council. Perhaps if we can't do it in the town centre. Can we do it in a park? Or the town centre would have been lovely because it's the main thoroughfare of the town. It's the route of the parade. But if we have to look at alternative locations that may not have such an impact on traffic, well, then they're open to that and willing to work with the council on it. OK, we leave it there. Sinn Féin Councillor Joanna Byrne, thank you so much for joining us this morning on the programme. We're back with you same time tomorrow, 9.15. The Alan Cantwell for two more days, standing in on the Michael Reed Show. I want to thank Chris for pressing buttons and Marie for producing. We're back tomorrow, same time. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.